are beginning a series in the book of Psalms. I'm titling the series, Living Beyond the Muck. Uh, that is Psalms 1 through 12. We'll go week by week through one psalm at a time. It was interesting. I was having lunch with someone this week, and he said, you know, life just gets so mucky. I was like, oh, that's great. That's what I titled the sermon series. That's what it's all about. Life has vicissitudes or ups and downs. There's hard times. There's good times. There's times where you feel strong, times where you feel weak. How do you get above that? How do you live beyond the muck? Well, as we look at the Psalms, we're going to see a deep world that involves God in every aspect of life, and this world is full of joy. Now, we begin with Psalm chapter 1, and Psalm 1 begins with a choice. I've been thinking about choices a lot. My family just entered into the teenage years last year. <laughs> I know. Uh, people come to me, and they're like, oh, boy. Get ready. Batten down the hatches. It's about to get rough, okay? And I just have to say, as a father, so far, so good. And I actually, I don't want to look at it that way. I think that might be a little pessimistic. Uh, there's a book that Paul David Tripp wrote, and he refers to the teenage years as the age of opportunity. I love that. It's a great way to look at it because as a parent, I have this immense responsibility and privilege to help one of God's children, or in my case, three of God's children, learn how to navigate life with wisdom. So we get to have a lot of fun conversations along the way. Your children come up to you and they're like, Dad, I really want to buy this thing. It just looks so cool. I need to have it. Or Dad, when can I get my phone? Or when can I get on that social media app? All my friends are on it. I want to get on the app too. Or, Dad, you'll never guess what this person did to me today. I am so frustrated. Now, I could approach parenting and just, you know, when they come to me and they ask a question, you know, just say, no. I'm really good at saying no. It's easy. It's a very easy response for me in the moment. Or I can get very directional and just say, this is what you need to do right now. But I've learned that that is not my responsibility. My responsibility is to give them the gift of learning how to make choices. So now when they come to me with one of those statements or questions or whatever it is, I have to actually get curious. Well, tell me. Why do you want to buy that particular piece of clothing? Like, what's so great about that piece of clothing? And then I become a counselor. Uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you yes or no about this thing, but before you make that decision, I expect you to do a little bit of reading. I, I, I want you to think more about this than just simply, well, five of my friends are doing this right now. Think. My job as a parent is to help my child broaden their perspective. And along the way, I'm handing over more and more of the responsibility of those decisions. You see, when they're coming to me with a question, they've got freedom on the brain. Oh, I want to buy this thing. It's going to be so awesome. That feels freeing. 
but they've got to learn something about freedom. Freedom comes at a price. Eleanor Roosevelt said it so well. Freedom makes a huge requirement of every human being. With freedom comes responsibility. For the person who is unwilling to grow up, the person who does not want to carry his own weight, this is a frightening prospect. And let me tell you all this morning, that is a frightening prospect. We've all met that person that doesn't take ownership, that doesn't want to be responsible for their decisions. God knows that that's a frightening prospect. That's why God gives us choices, and he embeds those choices with consequences. As we look at Psalm chapter 1 this morning, we are going to see that Psalm 1 is actually the gateway to the Psalms. If you want to enter into this world of prayer, of different experiences of life, of emotions that you feel in life, you have to enter into this world through Psalm chapter 1. And this psalm begins with a choice. So let me read it to you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, as I break apart this psalm, I want to frame it through a series of questions. I like questions. Questions make us think. And I see three questions in this psalm. First, where do you get your signals for living? This is the choice. What is true? How do you answer that question? And of course, however I answer that question, I'm going to pursue the counsel I receive for my answer to that question. Secondly, what is your definition of prosperity? I had a professor in seminary who said, we pursue what we, be- uh, what we perceive will please us. We pursue what we perceive will please us. That's quality of life. I'm going to pursue whatever I believe brings that about. Third question, how will your life be measured? So this is the sum total of your life. How will it be evaluated? Now, Psalm 1 begins with the first question in the first two verses. Where do you get your signals for living? And it says at the beginning, blessed is the man. Now, this is talking about a deep, satisfying, lasting happiness that we experience in our world. It's the same thought process that Jesus brings to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. You might remember those. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. So both come forward and they say, 
If you want this kind of life, this life of deep, lasting significance, this life of happiness, you have to make a certain decision. Now, the happiness that they're describing here is not a come-and-go kind of happiness, a fleeting happiness. No, this is the kind of happiness that you will experience in the good times and the bad times. There's a decision to make. It's a either-or decision. You have two options. We don't like that. We're Americans after all. Come on. I want many options. I subscribe to Netflix because Netflix has hundreds and hundreds of options that are specifically tailored to my interests. If they want my $9.99 a month or whatever it costs now, they had better give me lots and lots of options. But Here's the thing, not all decisions in life are a Netflix subscription. When you said I do, if you said I do to someone, you don't get to come back later after you said that and say, you know, I'd like to add some variety to the relationship. That would not go well for you. So you have a decision to make, either or, which will you choose? Option number one, you can immerse yourself in counsel that is devoid of God's wisdom. Now, how does that decision go for you? Well, notice the psalmist says that you will go through a progression. You will move from walking to standing to sitting. I I like to call this the road to immersion. Walking has to do with how I think Standing has to do with my behavior. Way is another way in the Hebrew of describing behavior. And sitting in the seat of mockers is describing that which you agree with. A mocker in the scriptures is someone who laughs at the things of God. And I've heard it said that we laugh at what we agree with. So this is that proverbial slippery slope where you move from neutral to considering to doing to finally you're sitting with them laughing at the things of God. Decision time. Which are you going to choose? Which road are you going to take? Do you want deep and lasting satisfaction? Guess what? I've yet to meet someone that's answer to the question, do I want satisfaction, was no. Everybody wants it. Everybody's searching for it. But how I go about getting that satisfaction, well, now people have a lot of different answers to that. So where do you get your signals for living? I need to make an important disclaimer as we talk about this progression with people. When you look at Psalm 1, you're in a specific genre. It's called wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom is not law. Law is thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. It's kind of like that sign on that fence that says, do not touch 10,000 volts. You touch the fence, you will receive the natural consequence of disobeying the sign. And scripture says, there's never a time, never an occasion where it's okay to take the Lord your God's name in vain. Wisdom's a little different. Wisdom has nuance. Wisdom can be defined as skillful living. So when it says don't stand 
or don't walk or stand or sit with people, is the proverb telling us that we should just separate ourselves entirely from people that don't believe in God, that are far from God, have nothing to do with them? Should we, instead of putting money into a building renovation project, instead buy a plot of land and form a Christian commune? Is that what Scripture is telling us to do? And the answer, of course, is no, that would lack all nuance, because Jesus was a friend of sinners and tax collectors after all. So, what is the proverb showing us? It's showing us that you will become like what you immerse yourself with. little accountability moment. How many hours did you spend on this last week per day? Look at it. Check it out. If you have an iPhone, you can activate it. You can swipe, I guess, this way is right. I'm not good with that, as Muriel has pointed out. You can look at the number of hours last week. Full transparency for me, last week was two and a half hours, which is actually better than it was. Katie and I spent the month of May fasting from much of media on our devices because we're like, you know what? We are immersing ourselves in the wrong place. Our time's getting locked up in this. It turns out that there is good immersion and there's bad immersion. Too much time on this all the time, I would suggest, is bad immersion. Good immersion is described to us in verse 2. He says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, And on his law, he meditates day and night. So what is this law of the Lord? My my English ear, when I hear the word law, it, it sounds to me like something is being restricted from me. My freedom is being limited Uh, I am being micromanaged. Here's a set of things that I'm just not allowed to do. I got to stay away from those things. But the Hebrew word for law is Torah. And Torah is not a bunch of petty micromanaging rules designed to restrict you. Torah is God's will or design for your life. In other words, it is how God has shaped your soul. He created you. He designed you. He knows just how you were intended to live. And and the scriptures promise that if you live in step with the shape that God's created for your soul, you will experience delight, joy, blessing. So, how do you get this here? How do you get this into your extremities to where you're actually doing what it says? Well, the psalmist uses a word, meditation. Now, when I think of the word meditation, I think of, you know, hiking up to the top of the Himalayas somewhere and assuming the lotus position and saying om to try to achieve some state of mindlessness. Meditation in the Bible is not mindlessness. It's actually mindfulness. The word meditation means to mutter. Now, my mom used to tell me as a boy that that was bad manners to mutter, but in scripture, when you're 
meditating on it, it's good. It's a good practice. It means that I am considering a piece of scripture over and over and over again in my mind. It's churning through my mind. Scripture was designed to be processed, not just glossed over. If I just see like a a verse on my social media feed and I move on and I do nothing about that verse, I haven't meditated upon it. It's like digestion. Think about that process. Imagine you take a big bite out of a morsel of food and instead of swallowing it, you just choose to hold it in your mouth. How does that go for you? Well, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Number one, that's really gross. Number two, if you do that, you'll probably either choke on the food or when you go to talk to someone again, you'll spit it out all over them. Third, you don't get any of the nutritional value out of the food. You have to swallow. You have to digest. Scripture is meant to be digested. The blessed individual described in Psalm 1 is regularly digesting scripture. What does this mean for my life? What am I supposed to do about it? How does this inform the relationships that I have in my world right now? How does this draw me closer to God? I'm just turning it over and over and over. Now, what is the result of this choice? We'll look again at verses three and four. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. If you are the kind of person that likes pictures in your books, you're going to love the Psalms. The Psalms are full of pictures. Why? Because pictures stay with you. You can bring it into your mind's eye. Let me show you the two pictures that are described in the passage. You have the picture of this tree that's planted by a stream of water. And then you have this picture of this stuff called chaff. And I'll I'll describe that for you in in a little bit. But the person who is digesting God's word is like the tree that's planted along the side the stream of water. Now notice what this choice offers It offers stability. They're planted. They're rooted. It offers vitality. They're by a stream of water, so they have this perpetual resource that they can draw from. They have productivity. They yield fruit, endurance. The leaf does not wither. And let me just say this about life. Sometimes the hot sun of life will beat down upon you. What's going to sustain you through that? They're also prosperous, and all that he does, he prospers. Again, this has nuance. Psalm three is uh, Psalm one is not saying to you, "Oh, if you meditate on Scripture, if you digest it, you're never going to experience any hardships. It's just going to be this happy-go-lucky life for you for the rest of your life." That lacks nuance. We get into Psalm 3 and we we come to the realization that life indeed has hardships. But what Psalm 1 is telling us 
is that if you make the decision to incorporate God in your life, the overall quality of your life is going to be, I was blessed. You'll be the kind of person that's laying on their deathbed and, and reviewing the totality of your life. And even though there were dark moments and light moments in your life, you look back over it all and you say, my life was good. It was worthwhile. I'm so glad that I had it. It's giving us the big picture. Sometimes you need to look at the big picture because when life gets hard, sometimes you just kind of fixate on the difficulty and you need to step back and look at it all. So I have a big picture question for you. How do you define the word prosperity? How do you define it? Now just a little clarifying point. When the Hebrew Bible is describing prosperity for us. It's not narrow like the English word where in English it's like someone has wealth and they have a lot of it. In Hebrew, it's holistic. It's kind of looking at all aspects of your life and it's saying this person is successful comprehensively in their life. In our culture, we can sometimes get very narrow with what defines success. Let me kind of paint a picture of that for you. Think of a woman who is the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Now, her career is storied. She begins her career at the basement level of this company. She works her way up over decades, just continually delivers and delivers and delivers until she achieves position of CEO. And then for five years, she takes that company forward. They triple revenue. They expand margins. But at the same time, her home life looks a little different. Somewhere along the way in the decade, she came home, she found a note on the table, it was from her husband, it said, I'm leaving, I can't live like this anymore, I feel so alone. She looks at her friendships and, do you have any deep friends? And she says, well, I got business friends. She goes out to dinner two or three times a year with her kids and when they're sitting around the dinner table, when she finally has some time to do it, they don't really have anything to talk about because she doesn't know them. How does society describe this woman? She's a success. She's achieved all the milestones that we want out of life. But the Bible takes a different perspective. A life that is lived outside of God's will is actually a grim and sad life. The Bible describes it like this. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. When you look at this second picture, this chaff, chaff is the husk that goes around a grain of wheat. This agricultural society was very familiar with chaff because when it was harvest time, you had to pile up the, the grains and then you would take this big fork and you would throw the grains into the air. The chaff is lighter than the kernel is. So it blows away with the wind. The kernel drops to the ground. The Bible often uses this image of chaff to describe that which is inconsistent and impermanent. 
It's telling us that a life lived apart from God is empty, sterile, and ultimately it lacks any kind of consequence. Solomon came to this conclusion. Have you read the book of Ecclesiastes before? If you haven't, I highly recommend that you read it. He spent a a broad season of his life where he did not involve God in his life. And as he summarizes the effectiveness of that and the quality of it, he comes down to one word. He's like, it was all vanity. The Hebrew word is hebel, meaning it lacked any substance, any permanence. It was like soap bubbles. They just kind of come along and then they pop, 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 go away. Contrast that with Psalm 92, describing a person in the back half of their life and their experience of life. It says that they still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. I have it on my heart, potentially in the fall. A little disclaimer, I'm saying potentially, may, I may run a series that I'm starting to write up here, and I want to call it How to Age Like a Fine Wine. I know we don't say the word wine in Baptist circles, but it doesn't have the same ring as how to age like a fine steak. (laughs) So I'll go with wine. And I'm really interested in the back half of life. Because often we, we hear all this feedback and advice. How do you win on the front end of life to set up a really like easy coast for the back half of life? And I want to suggest that that's not going to be fulfilling for you. That the second part of life can be the greatest part of life if you kind of capitalize on all of the things that have come before and leverage it for people and for God's glory. And I'm telling you, I know 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds that agree with Psalm 92. They look at their life and they say, you know what? I've done it. I've walked with the Lord and I'm glad. He has helped me to prosper along the way. He's never let me down. He's been present. They're like a a tree that just keeps growing and growing and growing and adding value. Speaking of your life, how will your life be measured? Psalm 1 is expanding our horizons. It starts very small. You got a decision to make. What are you going to choose? And it paints a picture of outcomes for life, one of prosperity, one impermanent. And then it takes us to a final evaluation. Verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. Like James was sharing, in June and July and August, we are going to be having baptisms at the beach. And that is such an important milestone in the life of faith. Can I just say that this morning? 
some people get confused with baptism. They, they ask, well, does baptism save me? Do I have to do this to be made right with God? And the biblical answer to that is no, that's not what baptism is doing. It is a an important symbolic act that you engage in to demonstrate your total commitment to Jesus. That's what baptism is. And when I talk to people about baptism, I want them to understand how important symbols are. Think about this symbol, my wedding ring. Okay, does this wedding ring is this my marriage? Well, I would say no to that, right? I mean, when I go to the gym and I take it off for 45 minutes, I'm not suddenly unmarried for 45 minutes. I'm not a bachelor again. No, this ring isn't the marriage. The marriage is the vows I made and the fulfillment of the vows. But important symbol, right? Because if I walk around all the time without this symbol on my finger, Katie gets really, really mad. I'm sleeping on the couch in the living room. How do you think Jesus feels if I refuse to come out in baptism and say I'm totally for him? I believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and I'm telling everybody. He doesn't like that. So when a person's being baptized, I like to kind of do what Psalm 1 is doing. It's making us think towards the end, uh, beginning with the end in mind. Think about the totality of your life, and, and, and you're walking with Jesus, and you're following him. The conventional wisdom of today says, well, when you begin with the end of the mind, you, you need to transport yourself to your funeral service. Go there, think about what people are saying about you, think about who's sitting at the funeral service, think about how many people are there at your funeral service, and then live your life to have that kind of funeral. Now, that's okay. But I don't think that's the best advice I could give you. I want you to think about a greater appointment. See, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Church, that's the only evaluation of your life that's going to really matter. It doesn't matter what people say at your funeral. It doesn't matter how many people show up to your funeral. When you stand before Jesus, the only evaluation that will matter is whether or not he says, well done, good and faithful servant, or I never knew you, depart from me. What is he going to say of us? Psalm 1 is explaining what will ultimately matter when you're going, undergoing that evaluation. It says this, that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now, this word know is so important. This knowledge that it's describing is signifying a personal relationship. It means that you're more than Facebook friends with Jesus, okay? In Matthew 7, Jesus talks about some people and 
And they were Facebook friends with him. They loved Jesus on Facebook. They liked all of his posts. In fact, sometimes they even like escalated the love. They put a heart under what Jesus said. They come to Jesus and they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons and do mighty works in your name? Today, a person might say, Jesus, didn't I have Bibles in my house? I mean, I loved Christmas, Jesus. I loved the Christmas carols. I sang them with all my heart. It was such a nostalgic season for me. I really, really cared about charitable acts of good in my life. And Jesus is going to say, that's not good enough. I don't want, like, Facebook friendship. I want real relationship with you. You see, God is not interested in some kind of distant, transactional relationship where I engage when it's convenient and I disengage when it's convenient and I just kind of do my thing, but I'm, I'm always positive. I'm always nice towards him. He wants to really know you and he wants you to really know him. The prophet Jeremiah says that that is the most important thing about your life. In fact, if you think about your life and you feel proud of something, he says knowing God is the only thing in your life worth bragging about. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you really want to put it all together for Psalm 1, the big idea is this. Knowing God is the gateway to living beyond the muck. Knowing God. It's the first and most important decision you will ever make with your life. It's the decision that if you make it, when you evaluate your life personally, when you look back, you're going to say, I really prospered in this life. It's the decision that you make when you stand before God. God looks back at you and says, I know you. You were one of mine. So I have a question for you. Do you know God? Can I ask you to bow your heads with me? Just take a moment to get quiet before the Lord, thinking over what you've heard this morning. Remember, reflection, processing, digestion, so important. I ask the question, do you know him? And if in your heart right now, you're like, you know, I'm not sure. Or I don't think I really do. The nice thing about scripture is if your answer to that question is no today, you can change that today. You can get on the path of knowing him. You can enter into a personal relationship with Jesus by faith. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Speaking of Yates, 
Jesus is the gate. He's the entrance to a relationship with God. And if you sense you need the relationship with God this morning, it's only through Jesus. And I invite you to pray with me and open up your heart to him and enter into this relationship. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment as best as I know how. I turn my life over to your care and control.